Well, as politics seemingly continues to trend to the theatric, the exaggerated, and at times the absurd, I am never more thankful than I am now that we still have Canada's courts as areas where reason, logic, and truth shall always be preferred and prevail. Um, legally speaking, during the second half of our second hour on a Thursday here at CFAX 1070, time now to speak with barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, Michael Mulligan. Morning, Michael. How you doing? Good morning. I'm doing great. Always good to be here. Interesting stories on the docket this week, including one involving a promise of a farm in Machosen that turned out to be complicated. Yes, indeed. Uh, so this is a case that, uh, as you said, comes out of Machosen. Um, and it's a case that deals with a couple of uh, concepts, one called promissory estoppel and another concept called unjust enrichment. Hmm. And both of those are legal concepts in equity, which are intended to uh, sort of alleviate um, sort of an unfair outcome that might otherwise occur. Uh, and they were the basis for the claim uh, brought by uh, a person in this case uh, to claim some right to uh, ownership in a farm. And the basis for that um, is that a fellow who passed away at the age of 94 um, owned a large 100-acre farm out in Machosa. Um He had never married. He didn't have any children. Uh, and uh, over many years, starting from back in the 1970s, um, the uh, plaintiff in this case, um, who was otherwise a uh, commercial fisherman, spent a lot of time working on the farm, uh, helping the owner of the farm. Uh, the owner of the farm, I must say, had a charming description by the uh, judge, described him as, uh, known to be stubborn, uh, but uh, also clear that he was uh, well-liked uh, by people in the community and had a uh, uh, quirky sense of humor. So it sounds like he was a, a, a really decent person. And in any case, the, the fellow who was a plaintiff worked for many years, for many hours, helping this fellow out um, on his large farm. Um, and over the years, the owner of the uh, farm made various comments uh, to the plaintiff uh, which suggested that he might inherit the farm. Um, and uh, the in the case, there was evidence of those which the judge accepted. And they went all the way back to like 1979. Um, and the remarks included things that were uh, reasonably general. He said things like, anyone who works on the farm will get a piece of it one day. Hmm. Um, uh, and made uh, comments about how he hoped uh, that the uh, plaintiff was ready to fight for the farm one day. <laughs> Uh, and various other comments over the years, including one about how one person is going to inherit the farm, suggesting that that might be the plaintiff, right? Yeah. Uh, the plaintiff, after uh, many years of uh, helping out on the uh, farm, um, was then informed that um, about a year and a bit before the uh, death of the person who owned it, uh, that he had, uh, he, the owner of the farm, uh, had um, done up his will to leave the farm to his neighbor not to the plaintiff. Um, and indeed, the owner of the farm had a very good relationship with uh, his neighbor. She had uh, helped him. She would help him out. She viewed him as like a third grandparent. But they, could go, they would go out for dinner. She'd help him with tasks, drive him to meetings and appointments and so on. They had a long, positive relationship as well. Uh, but the case came to court on the basis that the will wasn't changed and the entire farm was left to the helpful neighbor who had a good relationship with the uh, farmer passed away. Hmm. Uh, 
Uh, and so the judge had to analyze uh, those equitable concepts that I mentioned at the outset uh, to determine whether uh, the person who had done all this work on the farm, in part in reliance on various comments over the years that at least implied that he might uh, receive a, a portion of the farm or the whole farm uh, for his efforts. And so those concepts, the first one, promissory estoppel, uh, there are three conditions for that. Mm-hmm. First of all, there have to have been representations or assurances uh, that a person would receive some benefit or ownership of property. Secondly, the person making the claim must have relied upon the expectations of doing something, right, or not doing something. So in this case, the argument would be he did all this work on the farm for many years. And three, that the claimant suffered a, a detriment as a result of the uh, reliance. Um, now, the law is that representations of that kind can be expressed or implied. However, the law is also that the representations must be unambiguous, right? Hmm. And here, even though there was a circumstance where the judge accepted that over the years the farm owner um, had made various comments, which certainly caused the plaintiff to believe that he was going to one day inherit the farm or a portion of the uh, farm uh, for all of his efforts, uh, that he found that the comments that were made were just too ambiguous uh, in order to found uh, this kind of a claim in promissory estoppel. It just wasn't clear enough, um, and that's one of the requirements. Hmm. The judge then went on and analyzed this concept of unjust enrichment, which is also an equitable um, doctrine, Uh, And the uh, purpose of that uh, doctrine would be to uh, prevent um, a result, which would be through the languages against all conscience, um, uh, where the law wouldn't otherwise uh, recognize there to be, for example, a contract, right? For there to be a contract as a matter of law, right, you'd have to be um, sort of offer, acceptance, consideration, the various requirements for it. And so part of the concept of unjust enrichment would be to alleviate real unfairness that might occur um, if uh, that doctrine didn't um, exist. Like, for example, sometimes that might be used where, you know, you had uh, people who were living together in a home for many years as a couple, uh, and one of them paid half the mortgage or wasn't on title. You might then have a, uh, an argument that that person has, it would be unjust and there'd be unjust enrichment if the other individual could just, uh, after many years, say the house is all mine, it's in my name, ha-ha, there's no contract here, right? Mm-hmm. So um, the judge analyzed that as well, but once again found that the, all of the requirements for that hadn't been met, uh, including that there were other reasons why the man who eventually became the plaintiff would have been doing the uh, work, including friendship. Uh, and there was some benefit that was paid to him over the years. The farmer had bought him a couple of used cars and would take him out for lunch and uh, paid him some money from time to time for things that he had done. So again, that wasn't made out. Uh, but these principles, I think, are important things for people to know about uh, because they exist as a matter of law and they can be used to avoid uh, unfairness that might otherwise uh, exist. And you can also imagine uh, how uh, you might produce uh, a a, a result or indeed litigation uh, in the context of a a will, which is what this amounted to, sort of a dispute between the uh, man who did the work on the farm from the 1970s onwards. Um, If you had an individual who was 
you know, saying things like, you know, you're going to get the house or you're going to get the farm. Um, but then at the end of the day, does something different. And so it can be uh, more complicated than simply what is in somebody's will. Um, and there indeed, if the circumstances here had been slightly different, right, if the farmer had been more clear uh, in the promises made to the uh, plaintiff, there could very well have been a different result. Uh, and so in circumstances like that, it's not always going to be as simple as what does the will say. Um, there could be circumstances where if there were clear representations made that somebody uh, relied upon, like in, in this case, if they were just a bit clearer, there could very well have been a different outcome. Uh, but here, uh, the remarks made just didn't get the plaintiff across the line. Uh, and so the farm, all of it, uh, will go to the uh, neighbor who the um, uh, deceased farmer also got along with well. Uh, and uh, at least his wishes, as uh, indicated in his will, will be carried out. All right. Let's take our first break here. Legally speaking, we'll continue in just a moment with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Don't go anywhere. All right, we're back on the air here at CFAX 1070, legally speaking, with Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, what's next on our agenda? Uh, next on our agenda is a uh, former lawyer uh, who uh, has found himself back in front of the Court of Appeal after a number of years. Uh, and it's a case which has uh, a lawyer, former lawyer, who has a interesting background, uh, and there's some important uh, principles that come out of it that people would be interested in. Um, the lawyer in question was uh, practiced in Vancouver when he was a lawyer for 35 years, so for a very long time. Uh, and when he was practicing, he had a bit of a challenging reputation for doing uh, things which uh, were not in accordance with how lawyers ordinarily uh, conduct themselves. Um, one of the uh, things that he was known for, for example, was uh, refusing to uh, acknowledge receipt of documents right, sort of a basic function that will uh, sort of occur between lawyers. One would be trying to serve something on a, uh, provide uh, paperwork or documentation for another uh, individual. Ordinarily, a lawyer would receive it. Yes, I've got that. Uh, you know, we can have an argument about what it means, but that usually wouldn't be an issue. This particular lawyer would refuse to do that, uh, and he would often also not show up in court, <laughs> which he didn't want many uh, friends. Um, and so after uh, many years of this, uh, back in, um, uh, what was the year, back in uh, 2003, mm -hmm. uh, he had uh, eventually wound up arguing a series of cases in the Court of Appeal that were heard together, some murder appeals, uh, where after many days of hearing the, uh, and the appeals which were founded on this lawyer claiming that the lawyer who had acted for the other people was uh, an incompetent and uh, drug addict, claims which had no evidentiary foundation, um, the uh, Court of Appeal, uh, at the end of their decision, dismissing all of these uh, various uh, appeals that were heard together, made a whole bunch of comments talking about uh, things like the uh, lawyer's zeal blinded him to his professional responsibilities, and, um, described in very uh, unflattering terms uh, how the lawyer had uh, conducted himself uh, during the hearings of the appeal all of which eventually led to the lawyer um, uh, being disciplined by the Law Society and then eventually resigning back in 2009. And many of us thought, well, that's the end of that saga, but apparently not. Hmm. Uh, the uh, lawyer was recently back in the Court of Appeal um, dealing with two different uh, arguments, one argument being that uh, an, an effort to try to get the Law Society file on that lawyer who many years ago he was claiming without evidence was 
uh, drug addict and not competent, uh, and also trying to appeal um, a decision not allowing him to appear and argue an appeal on a $100 um, red light ticket <laughs> where he was trying to show up in court uh, as agent for the person who received the uh, ticket. And the particular decision which just came out was a, an effort by the former lawyer to try to have the Court of Appeal judge who was managing uh, this collection of things removed uh, on the novel argument that the Court of Appeal judge should be would be unfair for him to continue because the Court of Appeal judge was aware of the lawyer's reputation. <laughs> so it amounted to an argument saying, you, judge, are aware that I've got a problematic reputation. Therefore, you shouldn't be a, a judge hearing this case. Uh, and so the Court of Appeal judge uh, had to go through all of this history of so the lawyer's background uh, and uh, concluded ultimately that to accept the lawyer's claim, uh, former lawyer's claim, that the judge had to not hear uh, anything more to do with the case would lead to the absurd result of anyone uh, who had been uh, a member uh, of the profession and was aware of this lawyer's uh, reputation in the past would be unable to uh, be a judge uh, deciding things. And so, as you might expect, uh, that uh, uh, that application to have the judge remove himself was utterly unsuccessful, uh, and uh, we were uh, treated again to a decision from the Court of Appeal um, outlining uh, the uh, uh, challenging uh, background uh, of this former lawyer. And again, I think a reminder to uh, those of us in the profession about sort of what a lawyer's responsibilities are uh, that go, of course, beyond simply showing up and saying and, uh, anything that might be uh, potentially helpful to their client, that lawyers have obligations that go beyond that, uh, including obligations to the uh, court uh, not to make uh, unfounded um, allegations or to be casting aspersions on people without some uh, basis for uh, doing so. So I thought it was a, a useful kind of reminder to everyone about um, how lawyers are required to conduct themselves um, and um, the fact that uh, somebody uh, has uh, resigned uh, might mean that uh, we're not necessarily at the uh, at the end of the road. So. That's the latest of the Court of Appeal. All right. And uh, what's next on the agenda? There's a third story here, an unhappy customer I'm reading. Indeed. And so this actually in some ways connects to that last case that I mentioned, where the uh, that lawyer had been making uh, allegations uh, without foundation, claiming somebody else was incompetent and addicted to drugs and so forth. Those allegations were made in court, which means that there would be privilege attaching to them. And you can't sue somebody. Uh, for defamatory comments made in court. One of the uh, areas where there is no protection, however, are defamatory comments that people might make on the Internet. Mm. And this is, I think, a really important reminder because I, I think for some people it can be um, easier and quicker for people to do things online, you know, from their you know den or kitchen or something, uh, that you might not do if you had to sort of sit down and sign that letter that you were mailing into the newspaper or something, right? You might reflect upon what you're doing um, in a different format. So this case, it's a BC case, uh, involves uh, a man who had a dispute with a company that produced cedar products. He had a dispute about the 
cedar soffits for a house he was building, right? Mm -hmm. And there was an underlying dispute about the soffits. But in response to that, uh, the disgruntled cedar soffit purchaser posted reviews on Google and Yelp, negative reviews, uh, claiming that the uh, company that he was doing business with uh, engaged in fraudulent and deceitful behavior, really negative comments designed to um, damage the reputation of the company, a sort of revenge for his unhappy, uh, his unhappiness with his business dealings. And the company sued the man, and they've succeeded. Um, and uh, the case sets out what the uh, requirements are uh, for a defamation claim, and it can give you some sense of how large the awards could be because of how much damage somebody could do to another person's reputation by posting things online that aren't true. Mm. Um, And so the approach taken by the court uh, to assessing a defamation claim is going to be the same whether it's something posted online or published in the newspaper or in any other format. Uh, And the way it works is that in order to establish defamation, the plaintiff is going to need to show three different things. First of all, that the words were defamatory, like damaging somebody's reputation. Second, that they referred to the plaintiff. Um, And uh, third, that they were published. And published means, and this is important, they were communicated to at least one other person. It doesn't require anything more than that. And then if those things are established, right, it's then going to be over to the person who's the defendant to respond to it. And possible responses to it would include a claim of truth. There could be other claims like some form of privilege, or there could be a a defense of uh, fair comment. But in this case, the defendant who posted these negative reviews, his only defense to it was a claim that these things that he had published online were true. And the judge looked carefully at what the man had said and concluded, indeed, they were not true, right? That's And that, dealing with it in that fashion, can indeed aggravate uh, the sort of damages that might be uh, awarded, right? Because you're you're continuing to do things and make claims that can be damaging to somebody's reputation. Um, And so the judge then had to go on and analyze, you know, what kind of damages might be uh, or should be awarded in this kind of a case, right? This was the business that was suing, was described as a family business. Um, who had uh, produced cedar products. And there was evidence about, um, for example, what their revenue was over the years, right? And it was um, not an overwhelming, uh, overwhelmingly large amount. It was a small family business that uh, produced cedar products. And the judge went on to analyze how damaging it is when people make um, untrue claims uh, on the Internet, like Google and Yelp because they would be seen by people who would be looking to do business with the company, people who are going to their web, you know, their web page, that kind of thing. Um, and so uh, in that context, uh, the uh, judge analyzed the various heads of damages that can be awarded for these things. Uh, and the judge awarded $30,000 in general damages uh, based on potential lost business, $5,000 in aggravated damages, $20,000 in um, another $20,000 in general damages, and the total award made against the man uh, totaled $90,000. Um, and so the case should 
people should really be aware of that uh, when they are doing things sort of on the quick, right? And you can uh, imagine how somebody is sort of aggravated or angry and wanting to, you know, get some <laughs> revenge or whatever it might be. Uh, but things that people post um, on Facebook, on Twitter, on uh, Google, on Yelp, all these various things um, can be very significant. Uh, they can uh, be uh, around for a significant period of time. They can be difficult for somebody to um, remove. Um, and the damages can genuinely be very large and life-changing. Uh, and so, uh, like in this case, this man is going to be on the hook for $90,000. And so people should bear that in mind um, when they are seeing things online. The fact that you might be doing it from your kitchen table, right, or sitting on your couch, um, isn't going to be a protection. Um, and there isn't some uh, general uh, exception for, you know, uh, an unhappy consumer or something like that, right? There's no doubt that in this case, the man was unhappy, right? He, unhappy with the transaction that he had involving buying cedar products. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the comments that he made were not truthful comments, setting out what his problems, in fact, were. If the comments were truthful, that is, of course, a complete defense, right? If somebody truthfully reports uh, problems that they had, that is a complete defense to a claim of defamation. But you better make sure that they're true. Uh, and uh, don't think that there's going to be some exception carved out uh, because untrue things were posted online um, and not in some other format. So that's the, I think, uh, important takeaway um, from the B.C. Supreme Court. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. We've got 60 seconds left. If there's anything else you'd like to touch upon. Um, Well, I guess just as a a comment on uh, your uh, opening, you know, we're all doing our very best uh, to try to make sure the justice system produces the right outcomes at the end of the day. And I agree with you, one of the real pleasures of doing this kind of work uh, is that it is a forum where the watchwords are ordinarily truth, (laughs) right, and fairness and rationality. Yes. Uh, And it's one of the areas which is different from some how other decisions uh, are made, right? The decisions made in court are not based on popularity uh, or anything of that sort. It it, it is a nice uh, and I think important balance that there's a forum when you have this kind of, uh, we have serious uh, disputes about matters. You've got independent people making rational uh, decisions about them and explaining how they got there. Um, and so uh, we are, I think, very fortunate to have the uh, justice system that uh, we do, and those are uh, legitimately uh, core values of it. So we're doing our best every day, even though we may not uh, always get it exactly right. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking during the second half of our second hour every Thursday. Michael, thank you so much as always. Thank you so much. Have a great day. All right. You too. Take care.